Welcome to Galaxy Brands, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Everybody buys Bitcoin at the price they deserve. Yo, I'm slipping these nerves when I'm tripping these nerds. I'm flipping these birds, sending signals in verse. I'm rapping in the office, yelling, let me cook. Keep it clean, opponents keep a messy book. You want to test me? Look, I leave haters shook and devastated while I levitate. I'm the queen of all you rooks. We walk in the sun, forget the town, we paint the forest. Never boring, write it down. I'm like David Morris and I'm always winning Never have to ask me what the score is Every track I serve it back like my raps are seeding torrents Pick your poison, yo, and I will bring the noise Spitting it with poise when I'm ripping with the boys Not indifferent to the ploys of the haters who battle me But my crew is stronger than the forces in the galaxy As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmware research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brands. We have a great show for you today. As I said, David Z. Morris is our guest, former longtime columnist for Coindesk, writer at Protos and Flesh Markets. He was in the room for the entirety of the Sam Bankman-Fried trial. And as we know, SBF was found guilty on all counts. We're going to talk with David at length about his impressions from the trial, the things that really stood out to him, and a whole bunch of other interesting topics. This guy has been covering Bitcoin and crypto for 10 years so we're gonna go around the horn with him on all of it of course we'll check in with our good friend bimnet of bb from galaxy trading as always to talk markets and before we get to all of that i need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast represents investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by galaxy digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities it's a cool beat i liked it uh finn so sbf guilty 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 seven counts resolution it is it feels like the end of an era does this Um, feel like the trial of the century for this community you know yeah it definitely does and i think was but you know apparently very little uh question in the jury's mind about whether he was guilty they deliberated for less than four hours before convicting him on, on all counts i mean yeah it seems like there was no doubt seems like there was probably no doubt from the beginning middle and end seems very unsurprising yet right still quite jarring in a lot of ways yeah you know, it's a big sentence it's a well we un- don't know the sentence yet but it's That's a true. lot of conviction could a be lot a massive con- sentence a lot though. of conviction could technically yeah. if if he gets the max on every charge we're talking about 110 years certainly unprecedented in crypto this is the and, biggest one market. yeah i mean yeah absolutely. and the sentencing won't happen i guess until march 28th so we've got a while did you know this guy could have stayed out of jail if he hadn't tampered with witnesses he'd actually be at home right now before sentencing if he hadn't you know leak stuff to the press about caroline ellison and, and others it's just wild to think about but it's it's wild to follow he's a such a he was a unique character before the crash it's fascinating in a, in a lot yeah, of ways stunning story and we haven't yeah. covered it that much except for some of our chit chat but david z morris our guest he covered it extensively was in the room the whole time so it's a great interview coming up and um but let's go to bimnet and get the show started As always, Bibnet, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. Love having you on. And it's you, you were just priming me with there's a structural shift happening in macro. What is happening? Yeah, I mean, well, basically, the Fed during the last you know FOMC meeting, I think, told you that they're done hiking rates. And they're done hiking rates because, one— they're worried about the risks of, you know, continuing to hike and, you know, the kind of financial stability concerns Which that might come about. along yeah. with that. Uh, but more importantly, we're seeing softening in the data. 
right? Whether it's employment, inflation, some of the sentiment surveys, and not only domestically, but, but abroad as well. You've got, you know, Europe slowing down pretty aggressively now, China continuing to, to slow down. I mean, you, you know, we have a Chinese inflation print tonight that, you know, is most likely going to be a little soft. And, you know, if you think about like oil as a barometer for, you know, global growth and, and sort of, you know, the industrial complex, et cetera, it's starting to trade incredibly weak right now. We're at $76 a barrel on WTI crude. Brent just broke $80 a barrel. Doesn't seem like an economy, a global economy that's about to rip and have crazy inflation yeah, we're anymore. We're in the seven handle, seventy seven, handle on seven in oil. Handle. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and this is with a whole geopolitical situation happening in the Middle East. And you think that's and, is that driven by like declining production and stuff? Is that the issue? Is that probably it, it's, it's mainly a function of declining demand? That's what I mean. It, right, declining demand. But, but, but so I, I don't mean I, production of but, oil. Yeah. I mean of other stuff in the economy correct. that needs oil. So declining yeah. demand. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have like the SPR, you know, bid sure. level that is around here. That Sorry, I didn't been... mean to interrupt. Though. No, Continue. no, no, no. I mean, all WTI good. was one but of the, the, the examples. It's, yeah. it's, it's just a, a market indicator right now telling you that stuff is soft. And what you've had happen, you know, is a broad rally, um, including the back end. You've had a flattening of, of the yield curve. Right. So you got a double whammy with like supply from from Treasury refunding last week. But. Rates are starting to rally in, in, in the front end. In the back end, you're starting to price in more cut activity. The wages side of things, even though you have like UAW, et cetera, like I think the, the, the three-month run rate on like wage growth in the U.S. is like sub-3%, right? And so you're just in a situation where it, lo- it looks like your goals of, you know, tame inflation and full employment is kind of like within reach. And you have like, you know, some financial stability concerns as well. And so kind of seems like you're you're getting a huge sea shift in terms of like how market participants are thinking about you know central bankers their response functions and the the income like the upcoming data as well and so you know i think a lot of the the forecasters and, and researchers you know that, that i've been talking to you know they're expecting a continuation of the slowdown right if you look at things like uh, credit card spending data right like the delinquencies are going up for the the most sensitive groups, right? Uh, same thing with, with the auto stuff as well. And it's like, if you think about it, oh, somebody gets into a leverage loop where they, you know, have a high credit card balance that they can't really service and high interest rates. And so you're starting to see that kind of part of the economy or that, that sort of segment of the, the population start to really feel pain. Um, and so that's going to lead to, you know, slow down in spending. spending yeah. And, you know, there's like a whole crisis in freight happening right now, like tons of like uh, trucking companies doing like layoffs and stuff that's impacting, you know, all, all sorts of things from banking to like how, you know, people's jobs, et cetera. And so there's just, just lots of like anecdotal bits and pieces of evidence that suggest that, you know, the weakness is, is going to continue and, you know, perhaps even accelerate. You know, the counter to that is as rates move lower, people are going to, you know, want to buy homes again and stuff. And you've actually seen that. So the 30-year mortgage rate this week dropped 25 basis points. It's the largest drop we've had in like three months. Wow. But you know what happened? A subsequent increase in mortgage applications, the highest we've had since since June. And so there, there's like a push-pull of like, you know, when, when people start to overreact to some of this you know, softening data where and rates start to, to drop further, that is stimulative. And that does cause like things to, to come back. So it, you know, it's gonna be kind of like, you know, a, a swing of, of sorts, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Um, but high level, it seems like we're making good progress on so the were prices. They not, last week did they not was there not a higher for longer? Were they talking there was, tough? 
but they weren't they 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 want it all yeah. uh, they're just like it's 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 really tough. so you think it probably isn't so, higher for longer right now no it, it, it is it is it is higher it is higher for longer but raise even but, higher from here at the moment correct the the idea that they would go again after this like in my head is dumb yeah. and in the you know fomc pricing i think the jan meeting has another four basis points of hikes which is basically it. not a hike not right a hike. yeah and then and then i saw i think now they're the market is pricing what in by by the spring is cuts yeah 100 basis that, points the by the jan fomc meeting you know next year next year so yeah so it, there's, there's a lot of cuts but when you think about where we're coming from, like we're 525 to 550, like cutting 100 basis you're still points pretty from high. there, you're still pretty high. Right, which is what the right. Fed wants. In the yeah. That is higher for longer. Correct. But there are some other things. I mean, you're starting to see more commercial real estate deals go through and those valuations and those marks start to, to feed through. You know, and so there's just a lot of things that could potentially go wrong as yeah. well. And so, you know, I think path of least resistance is now lower. Um, in terms of yields that should be constructive for risk assets and things like, you know, Bitcoin. Yeah, it's been an interesting ride with Bitcoin. We've basically been in the range since the actually we've we've straight up mostly bled higher. Yeah, we're pretty firmly now in the high 34s or even the mid 35s since the the gamma squeeze we talked about now two or even three weeks ago. I'm forgetting. I think maybe two weeks ago. it's just been higher lows the whole time. So, but still struggling to break above thirty six. Do we have another leg higher in us before ETF Absolutely. announcement? Absolutely. This think? kind of price action tells you that they're dip buyers. Um, this kind of price action tells you that the pain trade is higher. Yeah. I don't think there's a, like there's been participation from the hedge fund community in a, in a meaningful way, and most folks are under allocated. Even the crypto native folks that, that you talk to are, that are crazy bullish. The all the people that I'm, I'm in chats with and communicating with, like nobody has had this on. Like, oh, I'm gung ho, crazy bullish Bitcoin. Yeah, I'm going to max allocate to it. And the issue is, everybody gets benchmarked to it. Right? It's the most liquid thing in crypto, and it's up over 110 percent with a great sharp. Uh, and it's got further upside because there's, there's you know, an catalyst impending catalyst. And, yeah. and so everybody that has this tool in their toolkit from a macro standpoint, from a crypto standpoint, is just looking at this and is underperforming this thing every ticket goes higher. And so that's why this thing has like such a strong bid on on dips. Yeah. Um, and secondly, like this is this is an asset like whose value is determined by, you know, where people are willing to transact it, right? And, you know, like there, there's, you know, sellers for miners, et cetera. But high level, when something gets to a value point or critical mass in terms of like ideas, right? Like Bitcoin's value is now 35000 to tons of people that trade money around. And the market makers, you know, determine where prices are set at the margin and stuff. But once something has value, right, it's tough to take that away. And God forbid, you know, we're back in a bull market and these equities and stuff. And so, like, people are feeling good about owning risk assets. Yeah, it feels like you combine it with the changing in the rates environment. Mm-hmm. You've got a Bitcoin having next year. Like, you've, it's like the perfect you've storm. got the catalysts, which people could cause don't inflows. Own it. People right? don't own it. And they, not enough people own it. It's, it's, uh, it does. It feels strong right now. Um, it and, feels strong. And, like, normally, I mean, like, really when you stronger, feel— Stronger than it basically has since we started this podcast. But this is what we've talked about. There's a convexity to, you know, the the thought, right? Right. And, and so it, it like once you get to that critical mass, right, it just, you know, starts to feed on itself. The, yeah. the positive fi- price action is a positive feedback loop 
into the, the asset itself because your thesis gets rationalized. You're like, oh my God, this is actually working. It's getting validated, brings other people in. And so we, we you know, we've, we've talked about this. Um, and yeah. so that's kind of, I think, where, where you're at. And it's, it's a wonderful place to be. And normally, like when you feel really great about something and like it's gone your way, you're supposed to sell something, yeah. you know, like take profits, et cetera. But like clearly everybody that's felt good about this thing took some profit and all of a sudden it's like all those profits that you took like you're underwater on them and yeah. so this is what, what happens when, when an asset performs so well especially late into the year where you have like performance you know coming effects, up yeah right that's like you're a hedge fund manager you're a venture guy you're a crypto business anything you know in crypto gets benchmarked to this and yeah so it just it just gets tough and every tick higher is a tick of underperformance last, last year we saw we ended the year bleakly right ftx collapsed like mid or early november we bled down all the way down i think we started 23 at about 16.5 but that also helped because then it was everyone's like oh base fresh performance too. base yeah. effect low base and we lifted off it through march we after around the svb collapse yep we hit 30k so it almost doubled in a couple months and earlier god this year. forbid we had the etf when we had the banking crisis oh god man. i mean you talk about money flying out of the banks going it, into right, money into, market funds yeah a lot of it would have ended up in, in a bitcoin etf yeah, i think, a, that's I right. think a, a ton yeah a ton of it's going to be an exciting time. Um, yes. I'm happy we've got Bimnet Abibi here to talk uh, with us about it. And, of course, we'll continue to talk about it, Bimnet. Absolutely. One Thanks. of these days I'd like to go off on just the BOJ. Okay, we'll do, do a, B a Bank of Japan episode. <laughs> yeah. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, my friend. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Let's go now to our guest, David Z. Morris, longtime writer about crypto and Bitcoin, currently writing at Flesh Markets. Check him out on Substack. Also, Longtime column, former col columnist at CoinDesk, David. Thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. I am super stoked to be here, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, uh, yeah we got some fun stuff to talk about. We do. So we're going, we're going to get into it a lot about the Sam Bankman Free trial because David was in the courtroom for the duration of the trial, covering it. Um, he's writing about it. He's been writing about it. I, I saw this morning, or I guess maybe it was I saw the tweet this morning. I think last night you tweeted that you may even write a book about it. Um, yes. Excited to see that. David's one of my favorite writers in crypto. We're also going to go back and ask David some questions about stuff he wrote as far long ago as 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but before we do that, David, maybe introduce yourself to our audience if they don't know. What are you doing now at Flesh Markets? What is that? And a little bit of your story. And when did you get into Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, so uh, I have been writing about crypto for more than a decade now. Like I wrote my first piece for Fortune about Bitcoin in like early 2014. So we're like coming up on exactly a decade when I was like working on those pieces. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. I uh, unfortunately was laid off from CoinDesk recently. I, the joke that I've made so many times, it's no longer funny, is that there should be something equivalent to a purple heart for journalists who lose their jobs <laughs> yeah. after destroying the company that they worked for. <laughs> um, and uh, before that, I was at Fortune for a little while. I wrote for a startup magazine called Breaker, if anybody remembers that. That was like one of the first crypto-focused publications. So anyway, long, um, long story there. And right now, uh, I just got through writing about the trial for Protos. So a lot of my work is, is at Protos now. Um, I will probably continue having some role there. Um, and just kind of like picking things up here and there. And, and yes, working on a book. I'm very close, I think, to having a, a deal with a publisher that I'm really excited about. Um, so we'll, we'll 
have some updates there. And I will actually also be, I'll show hard here. I'm going to be selling some NFTs um, to help fund the, the work on that book. So keep an eye out there. Very cool. um, and there, they will be sketches of the trial of Sam from inside the courthouse that you did, that I did. So um, they're they're going to be exciting. I think people have enjoyed that work so far too. I love that. So let's get into the trial because I think, like many of our listeners, I was you know observing from the sidelines, following like Inner City Press's transcript and and whatnot, reading obviously tons of people, including your work on it. But we weren't in the room, and I really want to ask some of some stuff about like what it was yeah. like at different points in the trial. Just broadly, though, what is your take on Sam's conviction? Um, you know, what does it mean for for the crypto ecosystem, if anything? Uh, we were talking a little bit about Nick Carter, and I think that his take is the best, which is that this is just like clearing the decks, getting all the bad actors out of the space, um, hopefully learning a few things, but God knows who we never learn. Um, yeah. You know, I think that we've seen the market obviously kind of behaving as if that's what's going on, that there's like clearing out, you know, we're getting this stuff taken care of Some and back to business. Back. Yeah. And, and I think that um, the more interesting questions, though, are not so much for crypto as like Sam himself embodies so many things about, you know, just the way financial markets work, the way venture capital works, um, things that, you know, ultimately the case is not about crypto and his crimes are not about crypto. Um, and I think that that is really the most important takeaway here. He's a fascinating character and all of his connections, his family situation, the effective altruism thing. They're just it's it's all so fascinating. And, you know, crypto is at the center of it, but also kind of not really crucial. Um, so it's really just an amazing story, whether you care about crypto or not. Yeah, he didn't even really like crypto that much. No. If you watch that uh, Eric Voorhees interview that he did um, basically right before the collapse. Right. Um, it was it's it's clear he doesn't really share any of the underlying foundational values of decentralization yeah. or self-sovereignty. And he said himself, right, he got into it because it was interesting to trade, right? He's right. not a... Right. So, yeah. And you saw all kinds of manifestations of that. But I think that the most important one is, you know, if you look at the the um, Michael Lewis book, which is a way bigger topic that we probably don't have time to get into right now. But, you know, the title is going infinite, right? Because Sam thought he could basically make infinite money. He said that. And... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's the Bitcoin maximalist perspective where, like, maybe there's some scenario there. Um, you mean like hyper Bitcoinization? Hyper Bitcoinization, yeah. something like that. But I mean, if you have a grounded view of crypto, like, this is not an infinitely huge market, even at maximum, right? right. Like, there are specific applications. We got to keep our heads on the ground. Like, there are, there's real stuff here, but that reality means it's limited. As long as you're living in this world of fantasy, yes, it can be infinite. Right. Um, but that's all Sam had in his head is like, I have this vague sense that like there's infinite money and, yeah. and, and he didn't understand the basics, but then he went to the top level. So do you think, like, what's your just impression of Sam in general? Like, is he an, a villain? Is he naive? Like, was it, because I, I'm honestly, I still haven't decided. I mean, I, I know that they very quickly convinced the jury that yeah. he obviously was a criminal. Yeah. I don't think many people dispute that, but like, was this more naive hubris or was it like, you know, evil uh, strategy? Like, you know what I mean? Is he, is he truly a villain or is he a sort of a, a sad case of his environment? You know what I mean? I mean, like, it's a complicated story because I think there are a bunch of inputs here. One thing that became clear during the trial that wasn't necessarily totally clear 
beforehand is I, I think Sam is a sociopath. Yeah. Um, I think he does not fundamentally care about other human beings. I think he has like a neurological situation. But you add to that things like, um, you know, he was brought up in this household where he was taught that everything could be explained rationally and calculated. And then he got into the effective altruism world where, again, calculation, predicting the future. They basically say almost anything is just a, it's a classic like John Stuart Mill utilitarianism thing, right? Yeah. Like yeah. if the the benefit outweighs the cost, it's positive, basically. It doesn't really matter. And that makes it, you know, as Carolyn Ellison told in testimony, Sam did not believe that there was any rationalization for moral rules like don't lie and don't steal. So his his particular brain combined with these, you know, lessons that he was learning led to what happened. And he, you know, the other sort of the more grounded version of this is that wasn't clear is I think a lot of people in crypto going in thought that like Gary, Nashad, Carolyn and Sam were like, you know, the gang of four operating, right. stealing. But it turns out really that Sam was basically bullying and manipulating the other four people, or at least that's the image that came across during the trial. I think he is a villain. I think yeah. he is a villain. Right. So like the sociopathic nature and stuff. You're right. It did feel like, I mean, if we believe the testimony from Gary and Nishad and Adam Yadidia. Not one of the charged people. Right. They, they all, though, paint a similar picture of like, I mean, he was just pulling all the strings, basically. I mean, yeah. even Caroline sending him the seven balance sheets. And him saying, you know what, pick the seventh yeah. one that has no no reference to the whole. Yeah. It does paint a picture that he was at the center yeah. of it all. And then he tries to argue he didn't know. Oh, I wasn't looking right. at that. No one told me. Like, let's talk about some specific instances in the trial. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Caroline. They, by both their testimony and by reporting, had dated and obviously had a relationship. She was the CEO of Alameda. Mm -hmm. So they had a business relationship. Um, she was on the stand. I thought this was probably the... Well, until we got the cross of, of Sam's own right, testimony, right. I thought that was the most compelling and, and interesting moment to me, again, reading it. What was it like to you when she testified? What were your takeaways in general from that? Yeah, I think that sort of to add on to my previous point, I think that what became clear during her testimony is that she was, bottom line, in love with Sam Bankman-Fried, which is crazy to think about, but nonetheless seems to have been the case. And really, like, did what he wanted at every turn until the whole thing fell apart. And, you know, she cried. She didn't cry uncontrollably, but she lost her composure a couple times on the stand. And it was in the context of saying, like, I felt so relieved when it was all over, even though it was a disaster. Because basically, she had felt trapped into perpetuating these lies. Um, and it was convincing. You know, the, the point is that like you're sitting there listening to this person say something and what matters is their credibility, right? And she seemed extremely credible in explaining this, that like she had felt, you know, she she was a junior trader basically and then got bumped up into the CEO role, did not get a raise, did not get equity, um, but was basically, I think, made into a fall guy late in the game. Um, and I think that was the, the takeaway from yeah. her testimony. Um, let's talk about the cross. Uh, so Sam, first of all, let's talk about Sam testifying. We, we joked Phineas right. and I a couple episodes ago about like, I think I said it, you know, things aren't going too good for him. Like this it seems like he needs a Hail Mary. Like typically you would always right. advise your clients, lawyers basically universally typically advise their clients not to testify in their own defense, partly because of what can happen on cross. Why did he testify first yeah. in your mind? 
I think that my thinking on this has evolved because I think that for a long time I was just like, he's delusional. He thinks he's innocent. His parents, I think, genuinely are probably still delusional and think he's innocent. But the other aspect that we kind of figured out and that I figured out from talking to legal experts over the course of the trial is that the math of his sentencing is so brutal. Like, he ripped off so many people that according to federal sentencing guidelines, he very easily could get life in prison. And it's very possible that there was no possible upside for him to do a plea deal. Like he might have not gotten anything out of a plea deal. And so this whole thing might have just been a Hail Mary and he might have known going in that he was going down. May as well speak anyway. Exactly. Um, on the other hand, he definitely thinks that he can talk his way out of anything. Um, and and that was the whole point of the media tour, which, by the way, the entire reason he's trapped in this situation by the time he gets to trial is because the version of events that he gave in testimony, or not in testimony, just speaking Probably to the media. talking to Aaron Like, it's Sorkin. all on the record. Like, everybody or knew Andrew at the Sorkin, time, yeah. like, why are you doing this? And it turns out, yeah, like, once you tell the story to the media, then you're locked into that version of events. And, you know, his his cross-examination was brutal because he did not have an explanation other than, I don't remember, I don't recall, I didn't tell them to do that, they did that without asking me, um, all of which was contradicted by yeah. other people's testimony and in many cases by documentation. Yeah, what was it like during the cross, which I thought was masterful, in fact, um, I think that was the, the U.S. attorney Sassoon. She, yes, she, Danielle Sassoon, She seemed to star. smoke him in exactly. this. Because it again, was a but surgery. I didn't get to see. We're just yeah, we're just reading the transcript, and it's like she would lock him into a statement that he previously made and say, "Yes, I said that," and then, or or he'd say, "I don't remember. I didn't say that." And then she would. What was she showing as evidence? Like yeah, a tweet where he literally said that media. Or, yeah, I over mean, and over again. Right? Over and over again. Interview. The one that you know sticks with me right now is yeah. like she would ask him about something. And then he would say, I don't recall saying that. Or, and the worst part of the cross-examination was he would say, I don't recall using those words, or I don't remember saying exactly that. And then the judge a couple times had to yell at him and be like, just answer the question. Stop splitting hair. Did you say something did like that? Did you say that? it or not? Yeah. What is, what, how do they describe that? Like uh, the general, like, do you recall the in general? In form or in substance. In form or in substance. Did yeah. you say this? And he was just trying to weasel out. And he, it, it was almost like watching a guy who was a bad high school debater try and like score points on some technical scale <laughs> yeah. without recognizing that his real goal was to influence the jury. Who are and regular people. Who are literally cross-section of Americans. Who don't give, can I swear on this yeah, podcast? You can, yeah. They don't give a fuck about the niceties of these arguments that he's making inside right. of his own head. Um, and so it was a lot of that. He was just chopping logic and, and not really um, saying anything substantive. He was just like hesitating and, you know, there was an amazing piece of tape that I was reminded of in the George Stephanopoulos interview where he's like, at some point, Stephanopoulos quotes him the terms of service and says, these assets cannot be loaned. And Sam just sits there for a second, whispering to himself on national television going, cannot be loaned, cannot be loaned. Like he's clearly trying to figure out some way to like get out of get this trap. It. Yeah. Um, and there were so many moments like that on the cross X where he's just like, all he knows how to do is play language games, yeah. and he didn't have any real answers. What was the jury's reaction in general? Like, when you looked over at the jury during this takedown, like, are they exasperated with Sam? Like, are they are they in shock? Like, how, what were some of the reactions you saw? Well, I think the real difference in reactions is actually between the cross-examination and the defense's questioning, because, um, you know, the jury was, by and large, extremely attentive. Most people were taking notes. It's complicated stuff. 
it's SDNY, so there's a lot of people with finance contacts who are I in that, that jury pool. I saw that. I mean, pool. actually, we looked at the jury pool. There was a four, there was even, I think, someone who worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the past. There was yeah, there was a Solomon was Brothers a banker, I think, banker, a hedge fund person. Yeah. I mean, so they a real cross section. There was a yeah. MTA bus driver or yeah. something. I mean, it was really interesting. Yeah, and and you know, it's a classic great, New Yorker. Like, it's one reason they try these things here is because people know what they're talking about. Yeah. But um, you know, people were attentive, right? And and when there's a back and forth going on, the jury was paying attention. The real killer, though, was when the defense was doing their questioning, often the jury would seem to be like zoned out. They weren't paying attention. The defense attorneys were very boring and not engaging and not telling an interesting story. Right. So, um, you know, there was not like any moment where the jury was like gasping or anything. They were just, they were paying attention. They were watching Danielle Sassoon put on a clinic. I mean, she did. Um, it was and then they really kind of checked out when the defense was on. So the they just like, I mean, they they clearly did not think, I mean, you could also did, didn't think Sam was credible, right? And I think that's the core of, sure, some of the substance of what um, Danielle Sassoon was pinning him on matters. There were some facts to pin him on, mm-hmm. but it feel like it was just a mega takedown of his credibility as a yeah, witness in general. Absolutely, like you can't believe anything he said in the defense direct because right. this guy is completely not credible overall. Right. And then in the closing statements, which were not Sassoon but Roos took over, um, you know, he just said straight up, you know, he Sam lied to you under oath, yeah. and that was repeated in the closing statements, which is brutal. Yeah. So then the jury, I mean, by my count, what, they were out for about five hours total? Not even that. Not even four? I think it was less than four Wow, total. So, I mean, the obvious thing, you know, is that if you're in a jury trial, civil or criminal, um, a, a quick, well, let's use criminal as the example. It's a little simpler. A quick verdict is almost universally bad for the defendant, yeah. right? Because yeah. it means, like... The, they just think he's and, guilty, and I mean, right? It's easier to find him guilty if, if everyone I agrees. can actually add some serious yeah. color here, right? Yeah. Because the judge set the deadline of 8 p.m. We went late the last two days. Everybody wanted to get and this I, over. I saw there was this thing about a jury who had a flight on Friday, so they were going to break for Friday. If it ran longer than right. Thursday, they actually going to wait till Monday. But, yeah. yeah. So, like, there was big debate back and forth between the journalists. Like, are we going to get a, uh, a verdict tonight? We just, like, were sitting there waiting, like, reading the newspapers in the jury room. It was going to eight. The the jury got pizza. They got cars home. That's nice. Good for them. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. At seven forty five, they're like, "We've got a verdict." So they were just sitting there waiting for the deadline. They were just chilling, like until about yeah. ten till eight. I, have they probably took about an hour or two to get the verdict. Yeah, yeah. right. They probably were like, "Let's be real, guys." Yeah, like, let's just eat some pizza. Well, and there were like nine counts, so they they technically yeah. did have some process of like, we do actually have to go through each of the counts and make sure we all agree that he was guilty on. Well, a here's count. the qu- here's the thing though: there yeah. seven counts. But seven counts. They actually don't have to do the technical stuff. Like the 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 judge instructs them on the technical stuff like but here's if they're just like you know what here. we're just going to do a straw they poll like, vote is everyone they don't guilty? have to do any of that yeah really they can do whatever they want actually yeah. once they're back in the room u.s citizenship Gosh. baby so have any of them spoken publicly since do we know i don't i have not seen. that i've seen sometimes jurors do yeah. they're, they're, they're free, free to. to yeah it's a free country um that'll be really interesting if they do i mean uh, journalists everywhere have to be trying to see if they can yeah. But, you know, you got to be careful, too, obviously, certainly during the trial. But in general, right. protecting jurors' identities is extremely important, right? So, I mean, their their identities are theoretically public. But I think on a it's not so much legal, but just in an ethical sense. Right. You don't want to out these These are people, people, by the way, doing yeah. their duty to society. This, exactly. is, this is not somebody who needs to be doxxed necessarily. Right. But right. Exactly. it will be interesting to hear, get, see if we can get some color about what it was like yeah. in I that would, jury room. Honestly, we're we're not even on the jury and we're still recovering. Like, give them a couple <laughs> weeks and maybe some of them will decide if they want to talk. Yeah, it was long. I mean, for a trial. Oh, it wasn't the longest trial, but no. that's a long. Tri- but it, it's what was it four to was it six or eight weeks or something. Else? No, four or five. Four or um, five. And actually, 
they really got it done. The Elizabeth Holmes trial was six months. Oh, my God. Was it really? Yeah. Lord, can you imagine being on that jury for that one? I mean, <laughs> I would have loved it. But <laughs> Oh, man. So um, were there any other moments that just stuck out to you from the trial that, uh, you know, like, I don't know, it was neat. To me, it seemed pretty, like, methodical and, and, and simple, the yeah. case against him. But Well, I mean, the thing that I was paying attention to, and it's a little ghoulish, undeniably, but, I mean, I was in the court courtroom watching his parents because – um, not only did we find out that they were way more involved than we thought, like, obviously, this is an intense thing for anybody. And it was it was tough to watch, you know, because yeah. they were losing their composure. I was I was in the courtroom when the verdict was handed down. And, and what they was... really, you know, they did not completely lose it. It seemed like this was expected by everybody by the end. Um, but, you know, they they got up. And I think this was interesting. I, I'm not going to speak definitively, but what I saw was Sam got up, the, the the verdict was was read, most people filed out, the jury was gone, the parents were there at the very end with dozens of journalists, again, ghoulish, but waiting to just see what happened. And they kind of like walked up behind the defense table as Sam was, you know, they didn't cuff him in the courtroom, they actually had two marshals that walked him out. But they were like sitting there waiting and like, They'll never see him again as a free man. Did they get to talk to him? They did not get to talk to him as far as I could there tell. A hug or any kind of He did not go out of his way to turn around and acknowledge them. Wow. Which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I might have missed some moment. Maybe there was some brief eye contact, but you know, he can't turn around and hug them. He's in but custody. They could have like done But a there was no like gesture real wave or, or yeah. nothing that I saw. It was pretty tough. That is tough, and I'm a parent. I can think about how devastated you would be, and also yeah. what a failure you would feel like, and by the way, would be. I mean, yeah. if your kid grows up and to be Sam Bankman Freed, you've clearly done something wrong. And in their case, it's even tougher than that because they didn't raise him as like some in any typical way, right? They indoctrinated right. him yeah. in a pretty alternative set of ethical standards. Yeah. And one of the big things that I'm going to be diving into when I write this book is. Yeah, what you know, are those? those ethical standards. Yeah. Well, one of the most fascinating things is that Barbara Freed, and I haven't done the full survey, but some of her work was about essentially arguing that people who commit corporate fraud are not responsible for their actions. And I mean, I'm being reductive, but she has a 2013 paper called, I think, Beyond Blame, um, where she's arguing that like blame in the justice system is harmful. And so like, putting those things together it's just like it's very it's there's weird stuff that is really weird and you know i, I have you looked in so the, so there's another trial and i guess is that on the political con, like the political donation fraud basically like election political fraud? donations um and i think perhaps the bribery charges it really remains to be seen and the government has until february 28th to let the court know whether they're actually going to pursue those charges yeah my understanding is that often when you get a big conviction and there's another set of charges you just drop the second round and don't go through it again. However, in this case, because it's the campaign finance stuff, there's some political barrier to dropping those charges. So right. they might wind up going through. Right, because uh, if they drop them, it looks like they're letting not just Sam, but maybe even Congress off right. easy. And there's probably deterrence reasons why they want to do the charges. And not just that, but it's partisan. And it's it's... I have right. to speak out because this is a, something that has been very badly misperceived. People on the right, Republicans, believe that Sam, and have said multiple times over the course of all of this, that Sam is somehow going to get a pardon or get off because he was this, like, Democratic mega donor. 
Y'all are listening to Sam's own propaganda. He committed campaign finance fraud to conceal the fact that he was donating money to both parties. Um, and so when you're saying so when he, he was this the straw donor, is he had was it Nishad exactly. and Gary? Who was it? Well, Gary? Uh, uh, it was Nishad and Ryan Salem. And Ryan Salem primarily. Yeah. I mean, he probably just like used everybody as cutouts, but those were the big ones. And he had Ryan Salem doing all of his because he gave he gave to two thirds of the 535 members of the House and Senate. Oh, I didn't know Supposedly that. Supposedly two yeah, thirds. Not surprising. Which is wild to think about. Um, many of them spent the money and can't give it back. Some gave it back or, yeah. or donated it or whatever. Hopefully. But like, yeah. um, that's a that's a big deal. He was also what the biggest donor to President Biden's or the second biggest something like I think that. It was the yeah, second biggest there. maybe to President yeah. Biden's um, presidential campaign. But keep in mind, he's like broke now, has no power, and has right. is embarrassed. So like, nobody's going to do anything to help this guy at this. No, point. totally, I, I agree. But yeah, I, it's going to be interesting if that happens. So then they're not sentencing until right. what March. And this sentencing trial. is set from March 28th for this conviction, which is wild that That's they just far. let him wait for four months. I um, guess if he hadn't been remanded already to MDC, yeah. some I read, and I don't, maybe, maybe you know if this is true, he might not have actually be in jail until the sentencing. That is my understanding, so and that is crazy because he idiot. just like <laughs> accomplished. The thing that got him sent back to jail was leaking Carolyn's um, diary or whatever, yeah. Which seemed to accomplish absolutely nothing and seemed like it could not have accomplished anything because, you know, it was part of this strategy where he was trying to, like, discredit her as the manager of Alameda. But it didn't look— But it didn't I, really I, accomplish and anything. And I, I read the story that was written about those the, those diaries or whatever, and I, I thought it was interesting journalism for sure, getting mm. into her head a little bit. But, like, yeah. I didn't think it moved the needle in any direction at all. So, no, and in retrospect, it honestly just supports the idea that she was, like, really— not into what she was doing no, at all. She was a she young, was hating every not minute. Not very experienced person for that role, and she was a, a girl. I mean, yeah. she was like a normal person. Like the, yeah. to me, if anything, it humanized her. Oh, totally. So I, yeah, I agree. Accomplished nothing. What an idiot. Why would he do that? He could have been hanging out in Palo Alto yeah. the entire time. And I think this speaks to you know sort of the bigger picture here of like who he was as a person and kind of how he was perceived, which is you know everybody, not everybody, a lot of people wanted to think he was a genius and. You know, in some perhaps very limited scope of basically being a traitor, maybe he was some kind of mathematical genius. At some point. But sure. in terms of understanding people or even understanding just anything beyond the very narrow scope of his specialization, he seems to be very stupid. Frankly. Yeah. I mean, all he had to do was not intimidate witnesses, basically, right. and he'd still be – he would have spent that entire playing time. Playing video games. Yeah, playing video games. He'd be right now playing – World of Warcraft or something, at least for yeah. a few more months. Um, yeah. It's it's just what a shocking story. I mean, just any any. I want to move on. I want to ask you some other questions yeah, about yeah. other writing you've done totally. and stuff. But you were talking about clearing the deck, like for crypto. You've been covering crypto for a long time. I mean, there's been you know, Mt. Gox. There was hacks of exchanges. There's been a bunch of stuff over the years. Where does Sam rate? Is this the biggest? The biggest fraud that has ever happened is it i mean it's definitely by scale the biggest fraud in crypto but i also feel like it's actually not some epochal thing right like you've been around too it's cyclical at the top of every cycle we attract vultures we attract parasites who want to like feed off of what's going on here which is growing the reason it's the biggest fraud in crypto is because crypto has grown not because he's exceptional right you know yeah it's really interesting and i think we'll see more frauds and bigger frauds the next time around and people will get taken but it's all about like learning as you go and hope you know there's nothing more lindy than like 
keeping an eye out for the new people and saying, I don't trust you until you've got a track record. Yeah. Sam didn't have one. He came out of nowhere. Um, no, it's no. just what a wild situation. Like, <laughs> I can't believe how, how that happened. Um, I, all right, because some questions we were looking through some of David's work, and um, which I, like I've said, I've been reading David's particularly yeah. CoinDesk columns for a long time. And so I've got a couple questions about mm -hmm. stuff that you've covered in the past. This kind of ranges the gamut across crypto. So we're stepping back from Sam's trial. Yep. You wrote a book, Bitcoin is Magic mm -hmm. um, Internet Money, Mimetic Warfare, and the End of Mere Reality. And in the book, you discuss the magical elements of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. How does that magic manifest in the creation of propagation of Bitcoin's value proposition and, and uh, belief system in your mind? This is sort of a give us a quick summary of the thesis of that book. The core of the book is if you're familiar with like Crowleyan magic or like what Alan Moore is really into, which is this understanding of magic as like a collective symbolic act where we're all kind of like agreeing on something. And, you know, this is kind of the big lesson of Bitcoin, right, is that money is what we agree money to be. Um, and obviously there's more to it than that. You can't just like put ticks on a board and the reason the system is what it is is to support that idea. But everybody who's running a Bitcoin, you know, node is participating in this collective act of meaning creation is basically the uh, core argument of the book and that, you know, we're, we're moving symbols around and talking to each other through the blockchain in a way that, you know, creates something larger than ourselves and, and, and larger even than the collective of all the parts. And so that's, you know, magic in the sense of discourse, of symbols, of like things that we elevate to a, a kind of transcendental state that is, you know, way bigger than the the bits and, and bytes on the computers. That's fascinating. Here's another one for, for you, David. In 2014, actually Bitcoin was around $900 at this point. You were at the North American Bitcoin Conference and Vitalik Buterin, who shortly thereafter would be the founder, the core, the main founder of Ethereum, obviously. He gave a talk on DAOs, and at the time, uh, they were often called digital asset corporations. And you said, you said he admitted, by the way, that we were reading this too, you said he, during the talk, sometimes he admitted strange frog hiccups <laughs> and gave, the, gave off the impression of, quote, a nervous nerd messiah. This is one of the reasons I love David's writing, by the way, is you've got a great way with words and flourishes. So that's I, I like entertaining writing. I, I prefer not to, you know, I want reading to be a textbook, you yeah, know, yeah. so... Um, so I do I, I continue to recommend reading David's content now at Flesh Markets. But at the time you wrote that despite their promise, there were issues with DAOs. And what you said was there was a lack of infrastructure mm -hmm. and integration of the broader economy, which would limit their functionality and adoption. You said they could either make our economies more egalitarian or they might further the domination of a savvy few. And you said they might eventually take on lives of their own. You said, quote, their most profoundly strange feature, the thing that makes them both amazingly powerful and more than a little disturbing, is their capacity to take on lives of their own. First of all, what did you mean by that? And then separately, that was 10 years ago. Like, yeah. has the picture changed for DAOs in your mind? I mean, the picture has changed completely. So, um, and, and just by the way, the 2014 talk, he he talked a bit about DAOs, but that was the announcement of Ethereum. Right. So, like, I was I was there for that. It's like right. one of my big um, right. OG OG moments. I actually still have a T-shirt from that conference. Love that. Um, but you know, DAOs at the time we thought were going to be automated business logic, right? So people were talking about, 
and this is still a possibility in a different way, but people are talking about like decentralized Uber. Um, and you, you know, the idea at that time was basically you set up an algorithm that's going to do certain things and then it distributes out and is able to interact with the blockchain so that it has monetary right. tools at its disposal. Um, and, and that understanding has changed a lot. I think that maybe eventually we're going to circle back around to that because I think there is immense possibility in, you know, just smart contract systems that are businesses. Um, but obviously DAOs now are more about groups of people coming together and agreeing to certain governance rules um, and, and coordinating action. And I think that that is still a totally viable and interesting model where, you know, maybe over time we slot more automation into those right because it's called uh, the term is a decentralized autonomous organization which doesn't really fit anymore no they're not autonomous and, but that was the idea at the and time we've, i've been a critic in the past i've said well they're also not mostly they're not decentralized mm -hmm. many DAOs are and DeFi applications are actually controlled by like a simple multi-sig right or their membership is permissioned which i think is actually correct for the way they work right. now but. I, I, but and then the third one is organization i was like they're also not organizations from a legal sense you saw this Although that's the, changing a little bit. I, I, I know, So and, I, and I'm hoping it will. I'm, I'm pleading with Dow founders and to register as a limited liability corporation, say, in Wyoming. There's, there's pathways now to limit your liability because actually they're mostly being held in courts to the extent this has been done. In, in at least two lawsuits, it was argued that, that they're general partnerships, which is actually terrible because that means every member of right. the DAO is joint and severally liable for the totality of the DAO's actions, right? So and in fact, on this topic, I really recommend a relatively recent book called Blockchain Radicals uh, by Nate Davila, who talks about platform cooperatives. So you can be an LLC, but you can also have a legal status as a co-op, um, which is you know a different thing that has different affordances, but um, I think actually fits the model of Even better, what DAOs are. That's very um, cool. So I think that that's kind of where we're at right now. And, and you know, I have good friends at Gnosis and other places where they're building out the tooling for this Because I remember, like, I uh, remember Aragon. I don't know if, they're, if they're, that project is still around. but It's the, still going, yeah. Yeah, that was a, also a very early DAO corporation. DAOs is really companies, mm -hmm. right? You could do payroll. You could have adjudication yeah. of disputes. It was yeah. very interesting. Okay, here's another one. Uh, in 2019, you tweeted... You said the reason maximalists are more, you're talking about Bitcoin maximalists, reason Bitcoin maximalists are more engaging and interesting is because they have an ethos and have played uh, out its implications. I couldn't spell out the beliefs of ETH heads if you put a gun to my head. Doesn't mean they don't have one, but do you still agree with that? Does, does I think Ethereum both sides more of, of that equation have changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, this. I hope this isn't a controversial statement. Well, I'm sure it is, but like, you know, the 2020 2021 class of Bitcoiners were. They, they were not sending their best, let's say. Um, I think that there was a big devolution in what it meant to be a Bitcoin maximalist, and it sort of turned into, you know, I, Nick Carter and I are totally on the same page about this, and we've kind of, like, written about each other's contributions that, like, the the Bitcoin crowd has lost the plot a little bit, I, I would say. Um, and there are still people, you know, like we, we talked a little bit about Eric Voorhees' conversation with, uh, with, with Sam. I mean, there are still very principled people who have... Uh, thought out their positions, but I think that there are a lot more people who are figureheads of Bitcoin who don't have thought out positions. Um, meanwhile, on the Ethereum side, I think the the ethos has developed a lot, and it has become a lot more about you know DAOs, coordinated action, social coordination. Um, I don't think all of those ideas are entirely intuitively compelling. I'm not really sold on like regenerative finance and mm -hmm. some of those things. It seems like 
a goal more than a practical thing so far, but at least I think it does constitute something like an ethos that has clarified over the last few years. Here's another one for you, David. Um, uh, we're going to talk about WorldCoin. Um, I, Oof, I'm i very excited about this because I have been a very vocal critic of WorldCoin. You have as well. Um, and I was a long time ago. I said that it, I, I think I tweeted, I believe this is actually what got me uh, blocked by um, Chris Dixon from A16Z. I said that it was audaciously tyrannical, the concept. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you've written yep. a lot about it. You said, um, exactly right. you said it's eviscerating for the ominous implications of gathering biometric data from the global poor, but also for the initial distribution of its tokens. They've played out a lot of your concerns. I'd love to hear your views on how privacy has evolved since you entered the space as a concept in crypto, but also anything on WorldCoin yeah. specifically you want to share. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like WorldCoin, what do you say? It's just like, it's very stupid. And it's like a stupid idea <laughs> from somebody who's very influential. And so he got a bunch of money for it. I mean, yeah. even if you think about it on a very basic level, like you can't scale it. You can't scale this like giant basket metal basketball to go out and like individually like recruit people it doesn't it doesn't make any sense like yeah. i just want to scream because just that very basic thing it's like how do you even get enough of those machines and enough people running those machines to actually accomplish the goal that you're setting out to it it doesn't make sense and so i think it's one of these things that you see so often in silicon valley where they're saying one thing but the real purpose is actually something else what do you think that purpose and is? i think the real purpose is really just to pioneer further biometrics like i think all they care about is the biometrics and they'll find some other application for that. Um, I mean, first, like, let's get into the tokenomics because, like, why is this going to work as a UBI? Like, where does the value of WorldCoin derive from? Is it just yet another thing where you're going to say, like, oh, everybody's going to use it as money, and therefore, it's, like, it, it doesn't make sense at any level. And so, I just like don't even want to belabor the point. Yeah. But privacy in crypto, yeah. right? I mean, this has been obviously a huge evolution, and I think it's still one that's ongoing because. You know, the privacy coin stuff is still out there. The, I mean, mixers are still out there. And I think that we do have to fight the classification of mixers as um, like money laundering tools. Like that is a major problem. But at the same time, I think that people have come to terms with, in a, I think, mostly positive way with the idea that blockchains are not anonymous, blockchains do not offer privacy. And that's not the worst thing in the world, especially when you t start thinking about like, I mean, you even still see people saying like, oh, crypto is for crime, crypto is for terrorists. We had this thing with the uh, Elliptic and Wall Street Journal uh, last week or two weeks ago where, you know, that whole thing got pretty thoroughly debunked. And I think that like as a space, as a industry or whatever you want to call it, like I think that's only good where you say like, no, what we're doing here is actually more about transparency than privacy. Right. I think that's a net positive, right? Because you as an individual, and I don't want to say like, if you're not doing anything wrong, like if you want to do stuff that's, I, ha I wrote a column called In Defense of Crime about a year and a half ago that I still recommend people Great read. title. Um, but the, it's like you're working around the edges. You're not doing like large scale terrorist financing or money laundering or anything like that. You can get away with stuff that is like pseudo gray area legal if you're just doing it around the edges. But then if you're doing like major crimes, people can find you. I think that's a good balance, you know. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I think that we're going to get to even further down. You know, we can talk five years from now, like 
Let's put charities on the blockchain so you can actually monitor what's going on. Let's put government agencies on the blockchain so you know how they're actually spending their money. I think all of those are very interesting and, um, and have yeah, potential. Because there's, there's been these so many, you talk about governments, I'm thinking of what immediately comes to my head is how uh, like the DOD like periodically loses like billions of dollars. Oh, you, remember there was a thing um, actually right started. before 9-11, the, the Defense Department announced that they had like misplaced like $100 billion, some number, I forget, I don't want to cite the number. And then of course everybody forgot about it because we yeah. got deep into the throes of 9-11 and then the war in Afghanistan. But like they, like, what do you mean you lost it, right? Like if it was digital, right, we would see where it went. I mean, yeah. you'd be able to find it. Exactly. <laughs> it's like it's and I mean, you speak to a specific concern of mine, which is like the security state and, and you know, intelligence agencies and things like that. Um, but that's a rabbit hole we can that go down is, at different uh, times. That's a good, it's a good one though. So you you wrote a column called Twitter is dead, long live crypto Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, you've you've been a critic of of X since the takeover by Elon Musk, but you still use it. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why do you still use it? What what value is there still? Talk about maybe the in your mind how it's evolved. Like what value did there used to be, and what's that delta? And, but also, where do you think it's going? And is there not a possibility of decentralized social media? Is that never you know that that sort of Ahab's white mm -hmm. whale that yeah. we're always looking for, or the holy grail that we never find? Mm -hmm. Is that something that eventually can emerge in your mind, or should? I mean, I think it's definitely going to emerge. Like we we have, um, at the very least, we've had all these projects. You know, um, Blue Sky is supposed to transition to decentralized at some point, um, and, and at least the infrastructure is being built. It's being proven out. Right, because like Ethereum's like uh, the Ethereum's like what Farcaster, Lens, something like that. Bitcoiners like Noster, which is also yeah, Lens and Noster. I think have had some significant pickup. It feels like I honestly haven't used either of them. I use Noster a bit, but I mean, but I I'm I think the Social media is like liquidity, right? Like it, it be, liquidity begets liquidity. Like you need to be where everyone is. And to me, at least in our space, yeah. Twitter is still the you know X is yeah. still that place. Yeah, it takes a lot to move people off it. But but how is it different now? I mean, it, to me, like I crypto Twitter has never been right. better. Right. But are other people not using it anymore? Other communities like yeah. I mean, I think that my criticisms of Musk fall into a couple of buckets but the main one is just like his business decisions have been insane and and his like relationship with advertisers and his understanding of where the value in the platform comes from it's like it's like the opposite of the thing that we're saying about decentralized social right which is that like the value accrues to the user and the creative and the poster basically whereas he's trying to like extract value from the user, I mean, he's doing things like like um, trying to get Stephen King to pay eight dollars a month for a <laughs> subscription. Like he doesn't fundamentally get when really where the you value need Stephen from. King on there in right. order to make the whole thing valuable. Exactly right. Yeah. right. Um, and and so you know, as much as I um, feel like there were major problems with a project like Deso, where you're directly trying to financialize social clout, I don't think that's a good model. But I do think it at least gets the structure right, where like the individual is the source of value. So that's my criticism of like Elon's approach to Twitter. He doesn't understand how it works. But as far as the current state of it, you know, it's become much less useful for general news. You have most news organizations are not even posting there anymore, frankly, because of the way that he has like treated them. Um, but for communities, for like tight knit communities, and especially for pre-established communities like crypto Twitter, it's it's all it's still really good. And I mean I have <laughs> tragically, you know, I've had a lot of success on Twitter after it has started its decline. So I'm just like extracting the last little bit of juice from that thing. And, you know, we'll see if it's still vital in two or three years. 
it is still, I think, important and useful now. It's really been great for me growing the newsletter, um, which, by the way, is at davidzmorris.substack.com. Um, and so it's still giving me a lot of value. Yeah, I mean, we went, we started on bitcointalk.org. Um, and yep. then Reddit yep. had a pretty big moment in crypto yep. and in Bitcoin. And then I would say since maybe like, maybe like early 2017, maybe yeah. even a little earlier, it, yeah. it, it really has been all Twitter. That's, yeah. the, that's the front page right. for Bitcoin, for Ethereum, for crypto, like for markets even. Yeah. Um, I would hate to see it go away. I love Twitter personally. I love the format. I don't like the long form stuff. That's the I don't I prefer to read yeah, it on Substack yeah, exactly. or on, on Medium is a much literally on the eyes. Like it's not nice on the eyes. I mean, it's another example I think of. Who like, wants to there read like some an eight thousand word tweet? Who there are some people who do, I guess, but like it's another example of Elon not quite getting like what the appeal is. So, so do you think he's going to add financial tools? And I don't mean the financialization of social, but like he's right. been talking about like making the everything app. I just I, I think he's going to do it in some sense. Like there's going to be things that are added. I mean, this is this is his whole and, and this is kind of why he, I think, has mismanaged it, because he didn't actually want to own Twitter. He wanted to go back in time to before he got kicked out of PayPal. And, you know, he made it X.com, which was in his mind originally. That was his domain. 20 right, years ago something. was a payments app. Yeah. And that's, I think, what he really cares about. So he or, makes it like, um, like what, WeChat, basically? It's like half That's like his half. goal. Yeah. But I also, again, don't think he's, like, looked at the landscape. Like, WeChat works in China as an everything app for very specific reasons and you just can't like recreate it in the in the u.s and western context so i think yeah. that's not gonna like i think he's gonna try but i don't think it's gonna really take off your new location is called flesh markets david z morris.substack.com yep um you can also as you mentioned read david's work in protos recently on the trial right um what is flesh markets what do you envision that that yeah. being and going forward so i think that in the context of the bankman free trial is a really good way to understand my project there because you know, the reason it's called flesh markets is partly it is literally a um, reference to some of the darker parts of our history and economy, which involve a lot of human domination of other humans. But in the specific context of finance, you know, Sam's key mistake was thinking that everything was calculable, that everything was just numbers and math, and then you could predict what was going to happen. But we are humans. We are flesh. We are weak. We are incomplete. And the numbers are just an abstraction of all of that. So the goal at Flesh Markets is to try and kind of bridge that gap where I'm talking about finance, I'm talking about tech, I'm talking about AI, I'm talking about crypto. Every, every week you get a couple of roundups of big news that have my thoughts, but it's all way more squishy than it appears on the surface. And you kind of have to get beneath that surface to get into the guts, to get into the complexity and, and the flesh of it all. Um, and so that's the pitch for the for the newsletter is that it's like finance with complications. <laughs> I love that. David Z. Morris from Flesh Markets. Again, check him out, davidzmorris.substack.com. Thank you, David, for coming Thank on Thank you Brains. so much for having me. This was an awesome conversation. Enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, David Z. Morris from Flesh Markets. Check out his Substack, davidzmorris.substack.com. And to our good friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. Wild times in the Bitcoin markets. Crazy that SBF, he's finally, I think we're finally done with hearing about him. That's probably not true, but we're moving on and you guys have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content at galaxy.com research. And follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.